Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. Uh, some people do their shows way in advance, but we do our shows live and uh, then hope for the best. But uh, I do a lot of research all week long, uh, spend hours and hours and hours looking up things. And of course, I have a background that goes back uh, 50, 60 years of looking up stuff and learning stuff. And, of course, I have the great teacher, which was Jesus Christ, uh, through the Holy Spirit, to help guide me to make my work a little easier. But it still takes a lot of hours. And I get lots of emails from people because we're out there, names out there. Uh, actually, I looked up and added a new search engine to my phone, that's uh, less biased than Google, which is not difficult to do. I added, uh, what's it, Brave, and I looked up His Holy Church right away, and uh, almost all the results was us, <laughs> either at Preparing You or HisHolyChurch.org or His Holy Church YouTube and all these different sources that we make available to you. And I actually came across uh, somebody, let's see if I can find that page really quick, uh, that, uh, but I didn't find it, uh, on the Brave search engine. I found it when I compared what Brave did with what Google does. And, uh, and Google, we noticed this a long time ago that Google would, uh, put content, you know, it used to be that when Google, we did a search, when Google first came out, we did a search for His Holy Church, we would be the top, eight or nine uh, results, and there would be other results that would maybe include the Catholic Church. If we looked up just his church, it would be, there's actually some uh, Protestant churches that call themselves his church and everything. And, you know, these are arbitrary phrases. They're not uh, names. Uh, they're just ways in which describing what we're doing. We're trying to conform to Christ and what Christ Church was, and uh, if you look at, uh, you know, there are four forms of uh, conformity, which is compliance, uh, identification, and internalization, and uh, compliance has a tendency of conforming with or agreeing to the wishes of another, so whatever Christ wanted, that's what we want. And identification, a feeling of support, sympathy, and understanding or belonging towards somebody or something. Well, that would be Christ. <laughs> so, there is only one denomination, and because there is only one denominator, and that is Christ. We're only interested in preserving and teaching and propagating the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll talk about a lot of different things, but officially the church can only propagate and preach the the doctrines, the teachings, that's what doctrines means, of Jesus Christ. If he didn't teach it, it's, it's not official of the church. It may be my opinion, and even Paul talks about this. He says, this is not official, this is just my opinion. He, you know, he kind of explains certain things that way. 
because he's saying how he sees him. And obviously he saw things a little bit different than Barnabas. Uh, but uh, uh, his writings survive, so we read his writings instead of Barnabas's. Uh, although there are uh, there are some writings that are suggested that they were Barnabas's writings, but they're not officially entirely in the Bible. So people don't usually look outside the Bible, and so we're going to look at some of the things that it says in the Bible, but we're going to look at outside the Bible to find out the context in which these things were written. That's very important. The Bible was written at a particular time in history, and so you want to you want to read the Bible in the context that the authors were standing in at the time that they wrote down the text. And so we do go back to the original Greek. We do go back to the original Hebrew of what of the Hebrew we have, and we have quite a bit because there is a lot of documents that have come down through the ages. We just recently put up a page on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans had a Torah, a copy of the Torah, and the Pentateuch specifically. And theirs differed somewhat from what you would see if you went to the Pharisees. Now, by the time the Pharisees were operating in the day of Christ... Uh, they were already using the Septuagint, which was translated by scholars <laughs> into the Greek. Now, they did have the Hebrew, and they probably had some of the original context. But uh, if, and we look at the Essenes, and we look at the Samaritans, and we look at other people of the time, they thought that the Pharisees had it wrong. And of course, the Zealots disagreed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed with just about everybody. <laughs> so, but uh, the Sadducees were more into, you know, what makes a profit for me. <laughs> so, But these are factions at the altar and we have a whole article about factions at the altar. And when I say factions, I mean they were literally political factions. Now, to some great degree, the Essenes, who didn't call themselves Essenes, they weren't all like, you know, are you an Essene? Do you have a card-carrying member of the Essenes? Some of them were a little bit more political than others, and those that were not political, in the sense of running for politics in Judea at that time, they referred to those that often were and found in the court of the king because they were highly respected. So if you wanted to run for office... You had to get at least a couple of Essenes on your side, or you just wouldn't be popular, because the Essenes were really one of the most popular groups at the time, most respected groups, even by the Romans at the time of Jesus Christ. Yet we don't seem to see the Essenes mentioned anywhere in the Bible, except for the fact that they probably are, just not by the name Essenes, because, again, they did not call themselves Essenes. And there's at least 50 different explanations why they're called Essenes. And uh, uh, so, yeah, you're not going to see the word Essene in the Bible, but you do see the word healer, and Essenes were often called healers, because one of the things that they were interested is in the health of the individual, and they took care of people. We want to kind of create a, a health center out here on the desert so people can come and learn more about health. Not that I'm the picture of health, 
But for a guy who was supposed to have died 50 years ago, I'm doing really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, we're going to jump around a little bit, but the major theme is going to be this idea, was Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights? And the only reason we're addressing this is somebody who is in prison, who's written me several times, and has not yet told me why he's in prison, uh, wanted to know, was was Jesus really in the tomb for three days and three nights? Because he said he was, and it doesn't seem that people think that he was. And Yeah, well, uh, I don't really think it's all that important. Uh when Jesus said it, he might have been using the phrase three days and three nights as an idiom, but he might have been specific. And so I was fine with it, and it didn't really teach us anything about the doctrines of Jesus Christ because that was not a doctrinal statement of Jesus Christ uh, when he said it, and which we see in, in Matthew twenty four or twelve forty, uh, and. and he, you know, he says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So they're saying that he's actually going to be buried in the earth. And, of course, this comes from, and, and he was probably not speaking Greek. He was pro- probably speaking either Aramaic or some form of Hebrew at that time. And uh, it is reasonable to think it was Aramaic. Uh, and if you go to Jonah, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, we see in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So when they translate that idiomatic statement that he is referring to from Jonah, we may take it literally as three days and three nights, but he's actually simply quoting the biblical text. And if you really want to understand what he was talking about, you probably want to read all of Jonah and understand it better. Well, we haven't done a study on Jonah yet, but uh, we might do one so that you can get into it deeper. But if you look at some of the other studies we've done on prophets, these things that you see written a lot of times are trying to express ideas that most people are not really catching because they are not reading the the text in the context of the time. But if we go back to verse 38, we see, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So, this statement of three days and three nights is not a doctrine for us. It's for an evil and adulterous generation. Now, Maybe some of you are an evil and adulterous generation, so you will need that, but you won't get the sign. You can only read about the sign in the Bible because you're not going to be there to find out if he was actually three days and three nights in the earth. So, anyway, we went and studied it and looked at it, and uh, there might be some things that we can look at and study and come to a better understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. 
But and certainly we tried to write this down so that uh it will be better understandable to him uh that originally asked me, but also to anybody else who comes on this and are looking up and wanna know, you know, was Jesus really three days and three nights in the earth? And uh so anyway, we the first section after the the basic introduction which we kind of gone through like I said the request came from this evil and adulterous generation so the sign was for them it's not for you and that sign you know you can't really prove it with the Bible because they don't have to believe the Bible that's an account we we don't even have the author sworn under oath we certainly don't have the uh, translator sworn under oath and and the historians who have given us a picture of the sign uh, uh, of the signs of the times, we don't have them under oath. And one one of the amazing things is when I was doing the research for this, pulling up a lot of you know fairly world famous scholars and theologians and stuff, and and I look at multiple denominations and different uh, sources, and even look at uh, other uh, orthodox writings that might give me some insight into the time, put it all together, and then try to put it in a coherent fashion into the page. All this takes huge amounts of time away from other things that I could probably be doing. But God said, go ahead and do it. So I I, I did it. I, I'm way overdue for sending a letter back to the prison. You can't even send a letter to the prison anymore. You send it, somebody else opens it up, scans it in, and they get to read the scanned copy. So the live links that I put in this are not going to help. And they're... There are lots of links in this article, which you can find at Preparing You, but there's at least 42 footnotes. Uh, those will appear in in the copy that he will get, but all the links, there's probably 50 to 100 links to other articles, so you get a better picture of the times. But Jesus also said in Luke 22:16 he would not eat again until everything was fulfilled in the kingdom. He wouldn't. So he wasn't going to eat again with the apostles until they were in the kingdom. And, of course, we see him eating again in John 21 and in Luke 24. Uh, eating fish and bread and honey. Uh, it, it, this is after the crucifixion. He's in the kingdom. But, of course, and he had already appointed the kingdom to his apostles I appoint unto you a kingdom. He did this to the little flock. He said he was going to do it. He called these disciples out, these these men out, to not be in the world. They were idiotes, unregistered. They were not a part of the system of Corbin, of the Pharisees. And in many cases, he didn't even they didn't even have to pay taxes, certain taxes, the taxes under the Corbin of the Pharisees, because. The Corbin of the Pharisees charged people a sacrifice, a tax, a tribute, money. And that had to go into the temple. Now, early in Israel, you know, they talk about Jesus. Does your master pay the tribute? Who owes the tribute? Do the, you know. And no, Jesus did not owe the tribute. He didn't have to pay the tribute. And... That was a temple tax, and there was a temple tax. There always was a kind of a temple tax, an ante up, which amounted to about a half a dime. That's 
uh, a little bit less than a dime's worth of silver. And every head of every family had to pay that in, that kind of ante up. And if you didn't have it and people wanted you in, counted in amongst the people, somebody else could pay it for you. That was the totality of the taxes in Israel. But with the Corbin of the Pharisees, this had grown quite a bit. Now they could build golden temples with golden doors and all this stuff because everybody had to pay in. But you also had to register to be a part of the Corbin of the Pharisees. And of course, that was one of the reasons why Christ condemned the Pharisees is because of their Corbin. Because their sacrifice was actually making the word of God to none effect. We have lots of links there on that page so you can find out what it meant to practice pure religion, what was going on in the daily ministration that we see in the first century church, what it meant to live by faith, hope, and charity, how the kingdom of God functioned, and what was the difference between the free bread, the Eucharist of Christ, and the free bread of Rome. Because Rome was doing the same thing that Herod did. They had instituted a system of Corbin. They spelled it a little bit different. But it was basically you registered and you had to pay in a portion of what you produced every year. And that that way they had enough money to provide everybody with benefits. Now, Rome also did a lot of conquesting. They enslaved millions of people, sold them into slavery, and they took the funds and were able to provide uh, gifts, gratuities, and benefits for their population. And the population accepted them. And they actually became accustomed to receiving those benefits and living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, which is why the Caesars, prime ministers, and presidents of the world get more and more powers because people have consistently become accustomed to living at the expense of others through socialist-type programs where men who exercise authority force the contributions of the people take away from one class of citizens and give to another. That, of course, is totally anti-Christ, anti-Moses. You can't be a good Jew and do that. There are, Moses was absolutely opposed to socialism. And Deuteronomy 17, 16 says that uh, you weren't to have any kind of socialist state. You were to write that down in your constitution to make sure that if you ever did have a king, a prime minister, a president, that he could do nothing to return you to that socialist state whereby a portion of your labor goes to the government and then they take care of the welfare of the people because the table of those rulers was the source of the wages of unrighteousness. They were the source of a snare and a trap that weakened the people. Uh, so that the people would no longer attend to the weightier matters that Christ talked about. And of course, everybody who listens regularly know that the weightier matters, that's a, that's a phrase Christ used, that that was another point of contention between him and the Pharisees. They were not attending to the weightier matters. So they had this covetous practice of Corbin, of forcing the sacrifices of the people that was making the word of God to none effect and not bearing the fruit of the social bonds of a free society, which, of course, weakens the people so that they become slothful in attending to the weightier matters, which is law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And we talked about that this morning, how society becomes so weak that your neighbor's business can be shut down, uh, he can lose his job, and you don't do anything to help him. 
he can be they can be threatening to force vaccination medical treatment on him and you don't do anything to help him you know you you protest on facebook but you don't want to say too much cuz you might get kicked off <laughs> so anyway th- this is how weak societies become weak is through these systems of corbin these systems of social welfare because they break the social bonds of a free society and we have a page now on social bonds. Uh, I've also added a, a page uh, or a section to the page on cognitive dissonance. And uh, I'm still working on it. I was working on it just before we started the program uh, to try to put it to, so that you understand the psychology of it. And this will be overlapping with the idea of the uh, uh, mass formation of psychosis. You know, this mass hysteria that we see going on with uh, COVID and masks and vaccinations and and why you have these Karens screaming at you in stores because you're not wearing a mask or not wearing it properly. And they're throwing these tantrums because of the maladaptive targeting behavior that comes about when you're under a psychosis. And I told the story recently, I don't know if I did it on one of the shows, uh, my own brother, years ago, when he was drafted into the army to go uh, to fight in Vietnam, he never got sent to Vietnam, but uh, when he first got there, they were talking about lining everybody up for vaccinations, and he kind of raised his hands and said he didn't want to take the vaccination. They actually said something like, you know, kind of mock you, anybody afraid to take it, just let us know. Of course, this was, this was back in the 60s, there was no anti-vaxxers there was none of this he just said he thought that that was going to end badly and uh and they so they didn't know what to do with him and you know he's this big strong strapping guy six foot six and uh and he just very politely and calmly said oh, i'd rather not take the vaccines i don't want to take them <laughs> but eventually he appeared in front of a psychiatrist because they were trying to figure out what to do, and maybe they could get him declared crazy <laughs> and have him kicked out. Uh, but the psychiatrist went crazy, literally. I mean, my brother's just sitting there talking to him quietly and explaining his position, and the psychiatrist just jumps up, starts screaming almost incoherently, starts picking up all the papers on his desk and throwing them on the top of my brother's head who's just sitting there calmly. And he's looking at this guy, and the calmer he became, the more uh, tantramatic this guy became, more screaming, yelling, and couldn't even make out a report. He was just shaking, like, this is your psychiatrist? <laughs> he's crazy. But this is actually what happens when you bring sanity in a world of insanity, in a world suffering from psychosis. You become the enemy. You become, you know, you're not wearing a mask. You, you must be the enemy. Don't you care about us? Because there's all this, what we call, you've heard it, virtue signaling. Because they have no virtue, they need to do a lot of virtue signaling. And because people don't understand the gospel, they will worry about, was he really in the tomb for three days or three nights? And uh, they they can't accept the fact that, well, maybe he didn't really mean 72 hours. Maybe he was just talking about, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Well, 
You could think that, and that's fine. Because again, this is not a doctrinal issue. He's not teaching. This is for evil people to have that sign which was at that time for them. Now, they did put it in the Bible text, so it's worthy to take a look at, but we shouldn't waste a lot of time with it. And we've already almost gone a half an hour, and there's a whole bunch here, and a lot of technical stuff, and I'm not going to ram all the technical stuff down here, but I tried to put, this is why there's so many footnotes, is I tried to put a lot of the technical stuff down in the footnotes. But the reality is, is that Jesus Christ called out disciples, called out, that's what church means, called out, that they were the church, they, these 12 disciples in the 70, the Sanhedrin, Christ called out 70, and that was his Sanhedrin, and they needed a Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin at that time, we have an article on Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin at that particular time, that pulled Jesus in front of them for a trial, they were not the real Sanhedrin. The Because the corruption was so great, uh, especially after Zechariah was murdered in the temple, and this political takeover by those factions at the altar, because the government of Israel had, which was now in Judea, what we call Judea, had become a den of thieves, a den of merchants, where they were turning the souls of men into merchandise with their system of Corbin. If your soul is merchandise, that means that you now have to labor for that who owns your soul. Uh, owns your rights. See, if, if a portion of your right to labor, which happened in Egypt, a portion of your right to labor, 20% of your labor now belonged to the government. Well, that means 20% of your soul belonged to the government because your soul includes your corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments of personality, which means things like your right to labor, your right to work, your right to get married. All those things are rights. Granted to you by God, which you have choice over. But if somebody else has choice over those things, like they can decide what is good and evil, and they say, it's good if you give us 30% of your labor, and it's evil if you don't, then they have the right to do that because they own you. You have become merchandise. If they have the right to say, it is evil not to wear a mask, and it is good to wear a mask, they get to say that because they own 20, 30, 40% of you. And of course, under the contractual deal in government, a lot of people say, where is the contract? Well, we show that in another place. We're not going to go into that. But the reality is you've made covenants with them in order to get benefits, and there is a disadvantage to doing that. So Jesus established this church, called out these guys, taught them how the kingdom works. They go out and start showing other people always preaching that you should be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and certainly not seeking the wages of unrighteousness that were set up in the kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of FDR or the kingdom of LBJ, <laughs> if you get my drift. So anyway, that seems to me a whole lot more important than whether there's three days and three nights. So in looking at all these theologians and these experts and these college professors 
I saw so many strange opinions. It was like a trip back in history. And some of them are saying that it's unlikely that John the Baptist was in a scene. It's unlikely that the the presence of two calendars caused any issue here. It's unlikely. It was just like, what do you mean unlikely? What kind of evidence is that? Where's your footnotes on this? Where's the proof? Well, it's absolutely clear. Anybody studying just the the bare basic bones of the history of that time knows that the Essenes had their own calendar. The Samaritans had their own calendar. Of course, the Egyptians had their calendar and the Romans had their calendar. And the Pharisees had their calendar. And now, in truth, a lot of them had multiple calendars uh, because they used different calendars for different things. It was very common for them to use a lunar calendar for figuring out when the feasts were. But if you were on board a ship navigating, you weren't going to use a lunar calendar. You were going to use a sidereal calendar because that's that's what the... And you may have used even other calendars, certainly solar calendar, positions of the stars is the sidereal calendar because that helps you navigate. You know whether you're too far north or too far south by the position of the stars. You know which direction you're going by the position of the stars and the constellations. And so they had all these calendars and they used all these calendars. And I go into some detail, lots of footnotes so that you can see where I get it. And there was also multiple Sabbaths. I mean, normally there would be 52 Sabbaths in a year because it would be 52 weeks in a year. But there were also high Sabbaths. There were other Sabbaths because of the feasts. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Feast of Trumpets, Pentecost. All these things might have an associated Sabbath with it. The Passover meal was not only eaten at Passover. They they would eat this at other times. But the fact is, uh, that particular year, if you, if you, if you counted as... What And there's even confusion about this because of the fact that we're not sure if we got, you know, when we changed our calendar, we're not sure we got everything exactly straight. But it does appear by consensus of people who study this in great detail that there was a difference in what we call AD 30 where... The Essenes had a Pentecost, uh, not a Pentecost, but a, a Passover before the Passover of the Pharisees. And from the text, if you go through the text, we begin to see that Jesus has already had a Passover type meal. He's already had a day of preparation. He is now brought for trial and uh, then brought before Caesar. Not Caesar, but Caesar's court. Pontius Pilate brought before Pontius Pilate in the Praetorium. And they're, they're bringing him in there. But they won't go in because the, the day is coming. Passover is coming. The day of preparation is coming. And they don't want to be soiled by touching any of these Romans or touching anything that's Roman or going in a place that they shouldn't be going. And so... They haven't had their Passover yet, and Jesus seems to have had his. Now, I'll just throw it in here real quick. It's also clear that 
Jesus was asking his two of his people to go into town and they would see a guy hauling water, which is really rare. You don't see a guy hauling water. It's usually a woman's job to haul water. And this is a servant of a big house. And they'd tell, follow him and then talk to his master and say that their master, their teacher, uh, you know, I give a brief note there that when you see this word master a lot of time in the biblical text, it's actually translated from the word that means teacher, not master. And, and that's what the Essenes would call their leader, his teacher. They would use that term. And that's the term they were using. But we, for some reason, translate it master. And I'm not saying that's wrong to translate it master. At the particular time that the King James Bible was translating this, a teacher in school, a professor in school, an intelligent professor in school was called, called a master. Not because he was master of people, but because he was a master of the subject that he taught. And so, it's not entirely incorrect, but if you don't understand that context, the context of when it was translated, you can also become confused and think that Jesus was some kind of master or overlord. Now, he was referred to as Lord, and we talk about that a little bit in the article, too. But, uh, basically, he was called the teacher. Anyway, so he asked them to prepare this feast in this upper room of evidently somebody who's wealthy in the city who has some guy hauling water. Well, normally, like I say, it would be a woman hauling water, but here a guy would doing this in a big household. That almost has to be an Essene household. It's certainly not a Pharisee household. <laughs> it's certainly not a Sadducee household. Probably not a Zealot household. So it's very likely it is. Is it proof? No. But this is... A lot of times when you're tracking a bobcat or a mountain lion, you only get partial prints. <laughs> but it's still a mountain lion. And you have to proceed accordingly. So anyway, there's the question, was it a Thursday crucifixion? And we go through the Thursday crucifixion and I give you links to some other people who talk about a Thursday crucifixion. Well, that would not fit with the calendar. And it also would not give you three days and three nights. In, in the, but I mention it just to show you some of the varied opinions that are out there. that are wandering around. So there is this whole calendar issue. And I have a section on the calendar issue. And the liturgical calendar of the Essene at the uh, Qumran, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, was a, what they call a pentacantad calendar marked by the festivals on the last day of each 50-day period, such as the Feast of New Wine and the Feast of Oils and the Feast of the New Wheat, etc. And like I said, the Pharisees had a calendar, the Essenes had a calendar, the, and the Samaritans had a calendar, lots of people, the Egyptians, all of them had different calendars and everybody knew about that. And anybody suggests that there wouldn't have been a difference because the calendar could be in a, a world of hurt. But what uh, I eventually, and I actually just added it today, is that uh, if if the Passover was prepared either by the wishes of Christ that knew he would be busy being crucified <laughs> and tried in the days to come and he wanted to have this meal and he had it on Tuesday night so that he could be arrested the next, uh, during that night, which is a strange thing. Normally Passover, you don't go out 
of the building that you have Passover in. That was a big thing in Egypt on the first Passover. You didn't go out because you might end up dead. And so everybody stayed in. And that's another whole story. Why did so many people die? What? Why did the firstborn die? And what was that all about? And well, if you understand the customs of the, the royalty in Egypt and the upper class in Egypt, which was everybody who was not a slave, uh, you would understand why. If, if there was a... Uh, you know, there was a village in Africa, and somebody came to vi- visit the village, and they came over the hill, and the, the lake at the bottom of the hill, which was surrounded by hills, it was like a caldera, but the lake was all brown, and normally it was all green. So something had taken place. They, the guy didn't know what, but as he walked down into the valley, he started noticing that all the animals were dead. And then he started finding all the people dead. And eventually, everybody was dead. There was one guy, I think, who survived who was actually kind of like in jail. He was in a little hut that had almost no windows whatsoever. And he was locked in there. And he was very sick, but he was alive. And what they think is that a big bubble came out of the lake and bubbled up. And put toxic, probably methane and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is common from these calderas. And, uh, but it came in such a mass amount, and it was such a still day that the whole caldera, surrounded by hills, no outlet, filled up with carbon dioxide and it just killed everybody. You know, the gases and the carbon dioxide just killed everybody. They just died of asphyxiation. But this guy, who had no air circulation in his little cell with a little tiny window, it kept enough oxygen in there that he did not die. (laughs) This is Actually, I've seen the photos. This was an amazing thing that took place. Well, that's possibly what happened in Egypt, is that for some reason, large amounts of some sort of gaseous material was... And if you were shut up in your rooms you wouldn't be suffering. And that there was a custom, just brief side note here, of the firstborn sleeping next to his father because he was to be with his father a great deal because he was, he was going to inherit everything. So he would sleep on a mat next to his father and his father would sleep on a raised bed. And they slept on raised bed because of lots of things like mice and stuff like that. But uh, also because they could afford it. But uh, their kids would be sleeping on the floor. And uh, so that that's one theory. i do not saying that that's the case, but that may be why the, a lot of the firstborn died. Is on the floor, the carbon dioxide was thick. But if you were raised up, it wasn't, it, you, you know, you, that's why you never sleep on, on the floor of a greenhouse at night. Because <laughs> you could die. Because the... It can fill up with carbon dioxide because the plants give out carbon dioxide. Just a little side note. You can study the calendar issue. The one thing I did want to add, add to this, just that I, I found in the Dadachi, which is considered kind of a, the teachings of the apostles, although it's not a part, part of the biblical text. It's extra biblical writings. But it specifically says in there, Because on Wednesday, Jesus was taken prisoner. 
And therefore, Wednesday afternoon, he was crucified. And therefore, he was crucified on Wednesday. And then by Wednesday evening, they took him off the cross and got him in the tomb. Well, if that's the case, and the Dadachi says that, and the Dadachi also says, because of that, that the fee, the fasting days were changed. And if you look in Mark 2, as well as Matthew 9, as well as, I think it was also in Luke, Luke 5, you'll see that they all talk about certain fasting days that the people will fast on like these other days in relationship to the bridegroom and and the bridegroom's trial and, and crucifixion, which is Christ. He's the bridegroom. Who's the bride? Just a side note here. Well, it's the church. The church is the bride. Remember, the church is this supposedly this woman. Now, why is the woman a church? Why is the church a woman? Is because the woman is normally the caregiver. The church, that's its role. It's not to rule over the people. It's not to force uh, ties or contributions. It's to be a servant. And this is why they talk about, you know, the bridegroom who's and, and the bride. And the bride is servicing, taking care of the needs of the people. And she is, you know, more precious than a ruby if she's doing her job. But he also talks about harlots and whoredom. And strange women. And this, of course, is public religion. That also takes care of the needs of the people. But does it for money. Uh, forced contributions. You have to pay. And uh, so, now, of course, you have to fund the church of your choice. If your church of your choice is going to become the social welfare practicing pure religion, you still have to. But you get to choose. Yeah, uh, what you're going to give and what you're not going to give because the church of Jesus Christ operates according to the perfect law of liberty. But anyway, so we kind of covered that and then I go back to the fact that this Passover type meal where it is a possibility that Christ had this meal set up earlier than normal. And I go into, in this section, I also go into this idea of the teacher. I show you the Greek words. That they're actually, that we translate master, but it's actually the Greek word for teacher, because that's what Christ was. And that's also what the Essenes called their leaders, teachers. And uh, they actually have, you see writings where the Essenes are talking about someone who they consider to be the teacher, who is like the Messiah, and they, again, refer to him as the teacher, not the master. Because he wasn't going to, you know, it's like Gideon, I and my fathers will uh, not, or my children will not rule over you. So anyway, then I have a whole section there on point of view. And I point out the seeing communities who read the same Torah as the Pharisees. Now the Samaritan Torah was a little bit different. Their Pentateuch was a little bit different. How different, I, I really don't want to talk about because I... It's not fresh in my mind. I've, I'm familiar with some of the differences, but I'm not going to be able to specifically. But I do know it was different. Their interpretation was certainly different. But Jesus talked well of the Samaritans. You know, that's why he has a whole story about good Samaritan. So, not that they all were well. <laughs> they were all doing the right thing, evidently. 
the woman at the well, she had five husbands, and he pointed out, well, you haven't had any. And this is is kind of a pet peeve with me, and I guess it was a pet peeve with Christ in the early church, that you couldn't even be a minister if you were divorced a bunch of times, and you, you, you weren't the husband of one wife and all this kind of stuff, and you didn't raise your kids properly, and they were all wild and lawless young kids, that you weren't good pastor material. Now, I, I'm not going to say there couldn't ever be exceptions to that, but the reality is that's a pretty good sign that you need somebody who is reliable. And this morning's show, I talked about trust. And people said, well, I don't know if I trust anybody. And I, you know, they had the, all these comments that they were making. Not that I haven't heard the same thing from other people. You're supposed to be trusting in God and the Holy Spirit. And what you're really supposed to be striving to do is become known as a trustworthy person yourself. Because, again, as you judge, so shall you be judged. If you don't trust anybody, then nobody's going to trust you. But you don't get people to trust you by blindly trusting other people. You get people to trust you by being trustworthy. And that's your goal. Your goal isn't to find only people you can trust. You can. Your goal is to become a trustworthy person. And you can only really do that with the help of Christ because he has to change your mind so that your mind is not fickled and fluttering about from place to place and from idea to idea. I believe this today, I believe that tomorrow. No, you have to find out what you believe. And those what you believe isn't really about whether it was three days in the tomb and three nights in the tomb, but it's about the character of Christ and the precept of Christ and the values of Christ. That's what you, your beliefs and your values should be. And there's nothing about values in this uh, sign of Jonah that he gave to the evil and adulterous generation. There's, again, look at the use of the word adulterous. Why are they called adulterous? Because they're having relations with other women? No, because they have the strange woman, the whoredom woman, the woman who takes care of the needy for money. FDR's system of social welfare, LBJ's system of social welfare by a government that exercises authority is an adulterous generation. If you can't see that, you can't be really born again. Because if you're born again, according to John 3, you're not going to be doing evil things. And if you're still praying to men who exercise authority and accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your welfare on the property of others, then you're still doing evil. And if you're looking to public religion, legal charity to provide those things, then then you're still, you know, uh, an adulterous generation. And you're not going to get the sign. <laughs> the three days and three nights. So anyway, I have in here, I talk about in Matthew 28, uh, one of translation states at the end of the Sabbath. But the Greek text reads... Uh, well, I won't read it in the Greek. I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek. After then, the Sabbaths. And there is a plural there. Now, some people make a big deal out of that. And, you know, high Sabbath could be referred to in the plural because it's a high Sabbath, even though it's one Sabbath. But it also may be, because plural, especially in Greek, uh, plural could 
and as well as in Hebrew, could mean something that's just, you know, they might refer to a really big ship in the plural, even though it's one ship. Because plural didn't just mean numerous numbers, but also could mean that it was a pretty great thing, a big thing. And so therefore they would put it in the plural, even though it was singular. But that's just quirks of the language. But it does say Sabbaths. It refers to plural. And so I thought it was worth mentioning. So, and then I also point out that the, the, and what I'm, why I'm going through all this again is really when I get to the end, which is far more important to me than, than this other stuff. But I'm putting it so that you, I'm trying to put in a lot of little, uh, jots and tittles about the time so you can see how little most people generally know about the situation. I mean, it's like my article on was Jesus rich? Well, the Bible says he was rich. It doesn't say he was a poor carpenter. It doesn't even say the word carpenter in there. It, it, it doesn't say that uh, Joseph was a poor carpenter. And the evidence from the text and from extra biblical documents is that, and from the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, who we know is one of the richest men in the Roman Empire, was their uncle. And anybody who knows the Jewish culture, that if your uncle is rich, you're not going to be a poor slaving carpenter <laughs> unless you're a lazy bum. He's going to help you out. He's going to finance your business so that you get going and at least you're, you know, a a housing contractor or something. But he was probably a stonemason and uh, worked in stone, which is a lot more, makes a lot more sense, in my opinion. But uh, anyway, it does say that though he was rich, having one of the, an uncle who's one of the richest men in the Roman Empire, whose favorite uh, niece was probably Mary. <laughs> And if he didn't like Joseph and he never helped him out in the business, which is a possibility, but unlikely, uh, once Joseph was dead, he was going to help the family. <laughs> that just goes with the territory. So, But he made himself poor. Now, why would he make himself poor if he was rich? Because he was both priest, uh, high priest and king. And as high priest, he's a Levite. And now, how did Jesus get to be a Levite? He's of the tribe of Judah. Well, his cousin was a Levite. And his cousin said that Jesus was to follow him. So once John the Baptist was dead, if John the Baptist was the legitimate high priest, and Jesus was the legitimate equivalent of Moses, being high priest and king, he could appoint 70, which is what, Moses had done. All these things makes you think, if you know the context of the religion from its origin, it makes perfect sense that Christ was high priest and king. And he could change everything that Moses set into motion. He could shift days, he could shift practices and all this stuff. But actually it appears that Jesus and Moses were in agreement and at the core of their teaching was that you had to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. And you had to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love God, you'll love the ways of God. And you will want to give free choice to your neighbor. You don't want to take away the choice of your neighbor. God wanted to give us choice. 
And he didn't want to take that choice away. So you, you, if you love God, you want to give your neighbor choice. You don't want to take it away. So you wouldn't have anything to do with socialism, which takes choice away. Takes a person's economy away. Takes a portion of their labor away without their consent. Now, they do get consent when you sign up for socialism, but your children didn't sign up. They were born into it, but then the children of the slaves of Egypt were born into that, too. So sometimes the sins of the father come down upon the sons. And right now, this socialist state that we've created has just cursed all the children of America, of the United States at least, with trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt. You've cursed them with that debt. And now we were just talking before the show and people were talking how much, you know, lots of food costs and and car costs, you know, Jeep Cherokee, over $100,000 for a new one. Uh, the only good thing is my old cars are now worth more. <laughs> but if you sell them, you're not going to buy another car because... And parts are hard to get. No, we're headed for trouble. So really what you want to do is rise from the darkness that you're in and not worry about whether Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. But I think we kind of covered it. If you look at the Wednesday crucifixion, I put enough evidence here. Talk about Mary Magdalene leaving when it was still dark. She gets there. Whether it was still dark or not, well, that's not really clear, but it May have still been dark when she got there. Depends on how fast she was moving. Uh, some people say she was a redhead, so she may have got there pretty quick, uh, judging from what I've seen. But uh, anyway, just a little redhead humor there. If she was redhead, who knows? Uh, but that's some of the traditions that flow in the background. It's not in the biblical text. But uh, the guards were all gone. It doesn't appear that Jesus rose Sunday morning. He he rose the beginning of Sunday, which, uh, you know, that Sunday is, uh, let's see, what is that in Hebrew? I'm trying to, Rishon. He, he, he rose early, but early Rishon is as soon as it's dark on Saturday night. And, as soon as it was dark on Saturday night, Jesus, if he was crucified on Wednesday, he was in the grave already for three days and three nights. There's plenty of time. And now he can rise from the dead. Uh, you know, whatever the sun, at least see that time of year, probably was dark, pretty dark by seven o'clock in the evening. He could have rose from the dead. Those guys figure and see the stone roll back and they... And Mary doesn't show up for several hours. By the time she gets there, the guards are all gone. Uh, and she, and so is Jesus. Because he's been gone for hours. So anyway, so that's, that kind of finishes it. But then I ask, what do you know? Uh, we appear to know there, there were more calendars. We appear to know that, uh, uh, even though all these teachers are suggesting that there wasn't, we know that there were numerous factions at the altar. We, If you've been studying this, you know that the altars were systems of social welfare that created the social bonds of a free society. Without them, the people would become accustomed to living at the expense of their neighbor and become slothful in the ways of righteousness and become desirous and wantonness of the wages of unrighteousness, which are the benefits offered to people that are 
are forcing the contributions of the people. And But with all the stuff that we found out about, we're still not 100% positive that we can prove that Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that he was crucified on Wednesday and he rose early Saturday evening when it was dark already. And that would fulfill that statement. And if you were a part of that evil adulterous generation you probably knew because those soldiers were going to be coming back and saying what happened they didn't want to believe it they wanted Pilate to take down the plaque that said Jesus Christ was king Jesus Christ was king Jesus Christ was king but he wouldn't do it so Rome recognized Jesus as the king the Christians who got baptized on Pentecost recognized that Jesus was king Peter recognized that Jesus was was king, did contrary to the decrees of Caesar, but did not do contrary to the decrees of Jesus Christ. Now, many of your modern Christians, they do contrary to the decrees of Jesus Christ. They don't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They don't provide social welfare and a daily ministration of pure religion. They engage in covetous practices. Their Corbin, which is the Corbin of FDR and LBJ, is making the word of God to none effect. And like I pointed out this morning, because LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and Clarence and Piven targeted the black community, they were devastated between the 60s and today by this rise in in uh, an adulterous generation and the breakdown of the family. So anyway, what we need to do is repent and seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and the wages of unrighteousness, the wages of righteousness will come to us and we will be a fruitful people. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.